0: Hello, everyone, it's December 12th, 2023. This week we have news on Vega and a couple of its propellant tanks that went missing months ago. They have been found, but they're not exactly space worthy. Also, the Transporter 9 rideshare didn't get everyone off the bus. It's a mishap episode, those can be fun too. Let's do it and lift off! Welcome to episode 438 of the Open Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. Ben's in Florida, right? Mm -hmm. uh, He was recovering from a cold last week, but I guess he was well enough to still get on a plane. So uh, that's where he is at the moment for work. Mm. So so we'll be taking the reins for this episode.
1: Yes, we will. And really cool, I don't know if you'd seen, but Ben had posted in Discord that while he was just sitting at the airport waiting, an Antonov AN-124 basically has was parked (laughs) right there. (laughs) Yeah, it's just Mm kind of just chilling at the airport. And I apologize in advance. uh, It is the Tucson Street Fair uh, this weekend. And since we record on a Sunday, that means that there are a lot of people coming by to get various uh, smoked meats uh, directly around my house, as well as uh, there's music playing. And so if you hear some Mark Anthony uh, in the background, uh, that's where that's coming (laughs)
0: from. But yeah, so tell me about this air-breathing electric propulsion for VLEO, very low Earth orbit. Very low Earth orbit. Because you have this in the notes, and I don't know anything about this, but this sounds like the kind of thing that I would be interested in. So what is that about?
1: Yeah, I saw that this um, this uh, Spanish startup, Creo Space, had uh, you know, put out some uh, announcement uh, where they were going to try to bring what's called an air-breathing electric propulsion system to the market. And it's pretty cool because we've talked about on the show, like including recently, uh, uh, VLeo, very low Earth orbit, and how you know the issue is that you're always going to have a little bit of drag, and so if you can have a, an electric propulsion system that just uses the tenuous upper atmosphere essentially as your propellant, then you could be able to just have kind of you know unlimited propellant. Effectively and be able to just you know counteract that drag and then have your spacecraft in V Leo and be able to just you know be closer to the Earth and get a you know higher resolution you know if you're doing imaging or just you know more uh, sensitive uh, measurements of whatever you're trying to do uh, if you're aimed it back down at the Earth. And so I had not heard about this kind of technology, but it has a whole Wikipedia entry and everything on the whole uh, atmospheric breathing electric propulsion, uh, ABEP, I guess they call it.
0: I'm sure the engineering is completely different, but uh, it would. Kind of work like a plane, right? I mean, because, you know, planes are air breathing. So mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of the same concept where you, you know, use the atmosphere to generate thrust. Uh, but I assume it would need some sort of onboard oxidizer or something. Or if it's, if this is electric, then it needs to generate power by some means.
1: Yeah, I'm i uh I'm not entirely sure uh how, how that all works. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you could use just like uh, a source of electricity to just ionize the air and then accelerate the, you know, charged particles that way, right. Where you would maybe potentially need a separate, cause you might, yeah, being electric propulsion, you might probably don't need a combustion going on in there.
0: Yeah. 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 That's true. Eventually.
1: Yeah. So yeah, it's like a, like people have looked into like, you know, Ram jets, like in space, like, could you just have, you know, essentially they never took off pun I guess intended, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they, they never really uh, uh, made it, but the idea would be that you just would use you, you do the same principle, but just for sort the of much more tenuous uh, uh, interplanetary medium, and then you could do kind of like large, uh, like longer interplanetary or even interstellar missions. Where you just you know soak up kind of mostly loose protons and accelerate them that way.
0: It seems pretty straightforward and fairly feasible. I don't know why this is something that does not like already exist. Um, mm. So it's kind of like an idea waiting to happen. I would say.
1: Who knows? This might be something that becomes kind of like uh, you know maybe not totally a household term, but maybe within you know the space nerd community it becomes a household term mm. in five ten years, and we actually do have. This flying on a lot of things and it kind of revolutionizes stuff because yeah I think that's a great point too I didn't realize just just the bandwidth for for communications um, or internet satellites mm-hmm. if you were just closer to Earth I mean that's that's why Leo is better than Geo and presumably why Leo would then be better than Leo.
0: So in the news, uh, Santo cielo, il problema dell'Europa. <laughs>
1: very nice david
0: very nice i don't know i can't say the rest is in uh, <laughs> uh, a time I, yeah i don't know so what's the problem with europe
1: <laughs> yeah so if, if you haven't heard this is a uh this is definitely a facepalm level debacle frankly um mm-hmm. that's that's going on with the uh, uh avios uh, vega rocket and so um you if you've been might have heard right that these Vega rockets, uh, they had one more launch set up. Uh, otherwise, they were moving on to the Vega C, a new and improved one. Uh, the Vegas uh, had, you know, basically three solid rocket stages, and then a fourth upper stage that had uh, some liquid propulsion. And um, originally, this final mission that was going to launch was going to take uh, ESA's uh, what's called biomass um, mission. And this was going to be a P-band, like as in PAPA, P-band synthetic aperture radar mission that would study the Earth's forests. And so P-band, that's one that is not, doesn't sound like an IEEE band. So I'm not really sure uh, how high or low frequency that is relative to other SARS, but um, pretty cool, whatever. Uh, It was a $200 million mission. And I just want to point out that a lot of this uh, I'd gotten from Ars Technica, which referenced a European spaceflight article. And the European spaceflight article ended up correcting that the payload for this final Vega is no longer biomass. It was originally, but uh, ESA went and swapped it out for a Sentinel-2C, which is part of the Copernicus program. And so those are a whole bunch of kind of, I guess, national critical uh Earth observing missions. And so uh, ours Technica hasn't updated theirs as of this recording uh, on Sunday, December 10th. And so uh, if you see that, just keep in mind that it's actually a Sentinel-2C that might get thrown up on what could essentially be a very janky rocket. I'll explain why it's going to possibly be janky, this final Vega mission. And the reason has to do with the fourth stage. So the fourth stage of a Vega is called the uh, uh, AVUM or A-V-U-M. Which stands for Attitude Vernier Upper Module, and it's the only uh, liquid stage uh, on there. And if you look at it, it's kind of got that upper stage look, where it's more practicality over, you know, the way it looks, mm-hmm. like over form. Or- I guess form over no function over form. I guess would be better. yeah. It, well,
0: I suppose it's 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 probably just an engine with you know in some fuel tanks uh-huh. and then a payload adapter type of a thing because I mean it doesn't need to push through any atmosphere so yeah they can make it pretty light exactly exactly
1: yeah it reminds me of like a frigate for example too um, yeah, but, yeah 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 much smaller and so uh, the engine on here is an RD eight sixty nine so that's a Ukrainian made uh, engine. And the propellant, which is uh, UDMH, uh, unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine, and nitrogen tetroxide, or NTO, uh, is stored across four uh, spherical-looking titanium tanks. And in particular, this upper stage would typically carry about 200 kilograms of the hydrazine and shy of 400 kilograms of the NTO. Now, what happened evidently was that two tanks went missing earlier this year. So, we're recording this in December, and it was only revealed to European Spaceflight, uh, who then confirmed with another source, uh, it was only revealed in October that two of these four tanks that the upper stage needs are missing. And so, these are the the tanks specifically for this final mission.
0: Hmm, this is weird. Okay. (laughs) Hmm.
1: Now, what is news, right? This is, you know, they revealed that they were missing in October. What's the news is that they were recently discovered, basically crushed. And in what ours describes a dismal state, alongside scraps of metal in a landfill. So they're they're toast. They are absolutely destroyed. They are not flight ready or capable anymore. These two tanks. That is what I mean by being a fa- facepalm. Something, they, so people screwed up. Apparently, these tanks were not properly entered into the company's tracking system. And so the team that was doing the investigation, uh, trying to figure out where these tanks went, they had little to work with, and they finally were able to track it down to this landfill. And the tanks were destroyed, essentially. And so that is not good. Um, that's that's kind of a, you know, we're used to talking about how like mundane things end up causing a, a rocket to explode during a, a ascent. Um, but this is beyond mundane because of, book, basically, uh, what's it, a uh, chain of custody, (laughs) you know, and just kind of uh, uh, management essentially screwed this up and you wound up with these two tanks inadvertently being destroyed purposefully by people without realizing what they were doing. And that puts this entire mission in jeopardy, which is pretty lousy.
0: So I'm still confused. So mm-hmm. exactly how did they do we know exactly how this happened that they ended up in the landfill it's, crushed?
1: It's unclear. It's not it's not quite like the the we don't have the level of detail like we had with the the red rag that was left inside. Yeah. The, you know, propulsion system that ended up causing
0: Arian fire an Arian, yeah. yeah
1: to blow up. We we don't have that yet, but we might in in the coming, you know, weeks or months, finally find out exactly what happened, whether it was somebody called in sick and didn't pass off the, uh, correctly, or somebody forgot to sign something that they should have signed. But at this, po- at this point, all we know is that they didn't make it into the tracking system. And so they kind of just were lost. And I guess the people who you know were responsible for knowing where they should be or not couldn't find them. And other people who were just, I guess, responsible for tidying up thought, well, let's get rid of these tanks. They, these aren't needed anymore. And so, yeah, it's it's basically to cut through and directly answer you your your question. We don't know. <laughs> we just don't know hmm. at this point. That's embarrassing too. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's it's not a good it's not a good look.
0: I'm trying to think of like how it could have possibly happened. I mean, there might have been like you know some kind of malicious intent, or like maybe somebody had an accident and then they just wanted to get rid of the evidence. I doubt that though. It, <laughs> I mean, so like maybe it seems a little bit more likely. I mean, I, I'm, there's pro- – actually, there's probably a more likely or a more plausible explanation that I can't think of. But the only thing that I can think of is that someone thought that they were something that they weren't. You know, mm. the, These tanks somehow – I don't know what. Like they, they were giant steel balls or something. I don't know. <laughs> like <laughs> well, what else could they have been?
1: Well, it's also worth noting too that they, they, they do have – right? This is the last flight of Vega and they are transitioning to the Vega C, which they've already launched before. So that might be part of why – Mm-hmm. um it kind of got a little vague because maybe there's a bunch of you know Vegas C people if that's the priority of the company then maybe that's how this sort of earlier generation rockets tanks could slip under the radar maybe they just maybe if not so much that they are deprioritized but that there's a lot of not everybody's working on the Vega rocket anymore you know the the legacy original yeah. Vegas and so maybe that's makes it a little more understandable, I guess, or, or trying to dig out. Cause like you're saying, like, how could this happen? <laughs> it's, it's, but then again, I, I'm sure, you know, some people that have worked for, you know, private, either not just private launch companies, but really private uh, companies that are very big on engineering and producing complicated machines or vehicles that it's, it's, I guess it's, I'm sure they could tell us that it, it really is a complicated thing. And I suppose this is calling out how important, you know, having, middle managers and supervisors keeping track mm-hmm. of things. And I guess I wonder if this qualifies as part of uh, systems engineering, you know, making sure that your, your parts are in the right spot.
0: It was probably like a procedural thing. And yeah, someone just, you know, like ended up making that mistake because uh, you know, it, it just wasn't properly checked off on or something like that. I don't know. That's my guess.
1: <laughs> well, people, people have been having fun. And I, I got to say that the uh, uh, Eric Berger's headline on ours was fantastic. Uh, what happens in Vega didn't stay in Vega, as key rocket parts went missing. <laughs> so uh, so what's the deal with uh, Sentinel-2C and this final launch? Um, it's, it's tough. There's not really an easy answer. The Vega production line is closed. So just fabricating two more tanks, can't really do it. What about the Vega-C? Well, it launched successfully in 2022, but the second flight failed. So it's grounded right now, or at least not flying really anytime soon. What about Ariane 6? Ariane 6 is not going to fly for at least six months, right? That's basically when they're targeting for, but it's it's been slipping for a while and it's very well may slip again. And even so, it has a pretty big backlog. It'd be tough to kind of just jump to the front of the line for this. And so this is, again, time that you're not going to be able to launch this payload. And then... Uh, what about private companies? They're probably two, like all these ones in Europe that haven't launched yet, but are in the process. Um, actually, I should say uh, MLD Space, the uh, the Spanish one that launched their Mira One. Um, that was, I mean, that was a demo mission. Uh, I don't think there was a, a payload, but if there was, I'm sure it was something small. Because one way or another, um, these small uh, lift uh, companies. I mean, yeah, Mira One was not even orbital; it was a suborbital vehicle. But these, these. Small lift companies, Vega is in a, I didn't really appreciate this, is in a kind of weird space between, it's bigger than small lift, but it's smaller than medium lift. So it's kind of intermediate between those two. And so it kind of has a a weird Mm -hmm. home in terms of, you know, like where it lies along that spectrum. And so those small companies wouldn't be able to do it, even if they did have functioning rockets right now. Evidently, ESA is pursuing two Uh, two options. Uh, The one is that they still have some old propulsion tanks for the Avum upper stage that they had built for qualification tests in 2012, 11 years ago. Now, four of these tanks that were done in these tests uh, exist. And the idea would be to re-qualify two of them. And if they pass, have the other two be the actual flight tanks that launch uh, for this final mission. Now, that is taking tanks that have been you know, not laying around in a landfill, at least, but they presumably like who knows if they are still any good. And so I guess that's why they have to be requalified. But even so, that's going to make this last flight a little more hair raising, especially since Vega, when it hasn't had to use decade old uh, tanks swapped in at the last minute, uh, has a fairly high failure rate as far as rockets go. Um, it's, it's, it, there's been quite a few Vega launch uh, failures over the years. And so the other option, which is kind of even crazier, I think, is to, well, you've got this Vega C, and so there's commonalities between it and the Vega, so they can upper sta- or modify the upper stage of the Avum Plus. So it, that's the Vega C's fourth stage, this kind of improved Avum Plus. And they essentially are going to have to go and take this upper stage that isn't intended for a Vega rocket and modify it sufficiently at what cost? that would be, I don't know, and try to use that for the upper stage and then just kind of pray that it'll work as they intend it to, even though that's not what it was designed for. I don't know. I like I like the old tanks, <laughs> uh, not having seen them or their uh, condition myself, but that seems like the better of the two, but if their condition is not so good, then maybe the second one is better. Um, I'm guessing because Sentinel 2C is, it, people might be wondering like, why not just put this on a Falcon 9? Um it, Sentinel-2C, I guess, being kind of, you know, uh, a mission of national importance. Um, I don't know if national security is quite the right word, but it's, it, I, I'm, I'm assuming that they really want to fly it on a European rocket based on what we're hearing coming from, from ESA in avio right now
0: yeah because that was my question like why not just put it on a falcon 9 that seems like a whole lot less trouble at this point and then i was wondering is this maybe if if nothing else just kind of like a point of pride you know like maybe that's it i don't mm-hmm. know i mean i don't know if that really would come into play but yeah there might be like national security reasons or something like that instead
1: yeah that's that's yeah because and and i wonder should look up whether or not we've ever because we, we have launched you know somewhat sensitive rockets or or spacecraft on Falcon 9s, you know, other nations. So we have launched uh, Sentinel 6s before. We launched one in 2020. Oh, we we launched only one so far in 2020 and then another one in 2025. Oh, but a Sentinel 6 is a NASA vehicle. It's (laughs) very different than a Sentinel 2. I mean, ESA has a, a hand in it evidently, but it's not, yeah, it's just not a Sentinel 2. And just doing a just doing a search for ESA on that page, I'm not I'm not seeing anything that's saying like here's an ESA payload that. Oh, well, here we go, Euclid, <laughs> but that you know, that's very different. That's a space telescope. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so maybe it's you know, yeah, national security reasons.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, it's got to be. It's got to be one part that, and then kind of a point of pride. I imagine has some.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That that is a term in the equation. But yeah, that's uh, that's the conundrum. That uh ESA finds itself because of this uh, mistake, so for everybody who's you know just starting their careers as engineers, working for uh, companies that build things, and it's <laughs> just uh make sure you follow the rules <laughs> when, when you have to like sign in for something, uh, please do so
0: good, good, important tip to end <laughs> on yeah. so um let 's uh translate on over to a second main topic we haven 't done that in a while uh transporter nine this was. What, like last month, I think, is when this launched? But we only recently got news of uh, mm-hmm. perhaps a little bit of a mishap with a satellite deployment or two or three.
1: Yeah, they're bound to happen <laughs> when you're when you are taking, I don't know, 60 different uh, satellites to orbit or whatever kind of crazy number they, they typically are. But yeah, this one is kind of an interesting story, too, I think, where there, there, like there was deployment. Well, we'll get to it. <laughs> I was going to say so part, of the, part of the vehicle, uh, one of the satellites started to deploy before it was actually deployed if that makes sense. Um, it started deploying its antennas and whatnots um, before it had left the carrier vehicle, evidently. Yeah, no, this is just uh, a lot of, uh, I didn't realize kind of how um, this is like failure fest again, <laughs> where <laughs> we have a whole bunch of uh, negative stories mm-hmm. as our news, but uh, yeah. So it's, it's basically momentous um, who does among other things, they have a Vigoride space tug, but they also just do kind of, what would be the word aggregation. They, they take, other companies payloads and, you know, we'll plop it onto a deployer and manifest it onto a, you know, in this case, a rideshare on a, a SpaceX Falcon nine Transporter nine specifically. And, uh, and yeah. And so they had done this with five satellites and they didn't use their own carrier, which I guess is good for them. They used a third party one, which hasn't been named. At least I, I haven't seen the name of it. And, and of those five that were, you know, arranged for by momentous, uh, the, a Turkish company called Hello Space, which is just great. Uh, their two satellites deployed fine. Hello Test One and Two, and so good for them. Now, of the remaining three, there was Aman One, Jinju Sat One, and Picacho. And here's where things get a little more unfortunate. Now, Aman One is a a uh, uh, was built by a Polish company named Satrev. Uh, but they did it for the government of Oman. Uh, and so I'm not exactly sure what this thing is supposed to do, but uh, it seems like everybody agrees that this thing did not deploy or not deploy and was still stuck to the upper stage and has burned up in the atmosphere. Um, what, what really sucks too about this one is that uh, this isn't the first one that they had built. And so there was an original Oman satellite uh, that was destroyed in a Launcher 1 failure uh, by Virgin Orbit back in January of this year. And so uh, they really are not, they're not catching a break, these people. And so that's one of the three. Uh, the second one, JinjuSat1, uh, was built by a South Korean company. And so they haven't commented on the loss of the satellite, but that one appears to be toast. Now, Picacho which is named after uh, a mountain between Tucson and Phoenix. And the reason why it's named after this mountain, I guess, uh, to some extent is that it's, it, it was built by a Tucson company, Lunasand, And uh, the idea was that this was going to be a test uh, satellite uh, for them ultimately building out uh, you know, a bigger and more capable one that would uh, essentially map subsurface mineral and groundwater resources using very low-frequency radio waves. So basically ground penetrating radar. Uh, Well, yes, I guess that's radar in that sense, because you would expect to get the echo back to be able to tell what's going on. At least that's what you do. If you're looking at like, you know, you're trying to look under the subsurface of like planets. And so I'm assuming they're trying to do the same thing around the earth. They uh, initially had indicated that like, they were like, Hey, you know, we deployed our, our our spacecraft was deployed. It's a one U cubesat. It was deployed successfully and it's on orbit and things are great. And Uh, But they were still a little worried because they had uh, their radio uh, antenna, the main antenna was uh, that uh, tape measure type, right? Where you have just, I mean, in some cases it looks like it's literally a tape measure, but this, you know, is is, is shaped like a tape measure. Maybe they just kind of filed off the yellow Um, and, 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 and it's almost four meters long. So it's, you know, that's 12 feet. That's not nothing. And so this this antenna though uh, was late in being deployed, and so they were concerned about that. Now I don't know exactly what happened because, again, th- this company is saying that they it seemed like their object their their spacecraft was on orbit, but Momentus is saying that based on the telemetry they got from the uh, deployer that it wasn't deployed. What Momentus thinks happened is that a uh, the door of the deployer that contained Pikachu opened but the pusher plate did not fully move i guess it's possible that it might have just been like you know mildly ejected and deployed so so the company got some you know signals that they you know it had the type of you know characteristics that they would you know expect it to have if it was Pikachu and so that's that's also a tricky thing about these ride shares is that when you go and release you know dozens of things all very close to each other relatively on orbit, it can be challenging to communicate and identify your objects because um, at least with regards to the latter, uh, they're not, you know, you might ask, okay, well, like, how about all these people that, you know, track you know, things, objects on orbit, Uh, Picacho is not listed as being on orbit, but a lot of the payloads from Transporter 9 still lack formal identifications because, again, it's so crowded and you kind of, I guess, need them to space out a little bit before you can really tease out that, okay, that point of light corresponds to this specific spacecraft and that point of light corresponds to this specific satellite and so on. And so it can be challenging. I guess that's another reason to remember that while... I mean, just to kind of, you know, it's a bit of an aside, but we talked about the difference between whether or not everyone's always going to want to do a ride share or whether or not dedicated launch will ever have a market in the future. And I think there always will be some subset of dedicated launch. And this could be something where, you know, if you have a spacecraft and you think it's important enough that you don't want it to get lost in the jumble with everything else give it a dedicated launch and so yeah in any event that's kind of it's unclear exactly whether or not picacho a hometown favorite of mine uh is uh if it's successfully on orbit or if it is uh you know had the fate of Amon one and uh, jinju sat one and basically wound up stuck to the upper stage and re-entered in an unfortunate way possibly beaming back telemetry while still semi-attached to the deployer <laughs> which would be unfortunate
0: Okay, so we got three short and sweet this week. Uh, Dennis, what is the first one?
1: First up, Iran successfully launches biocapsule. Iran announced that a 500-kilogram capsule carrying enough life support equipment to keep any animals alive was launched by a Salman rocket to a height of 130 kilometers. While it is unclear whether any animals were on board, the test was a step towards sending an Iranian astronaut to orbit by 2029. The nation says that it has launched animals to space previously, first in 2010 and again in 2013, with the latter flying two monkeys to space, which returned to Earth safely.
0: Next up, Chinese Methalox rocket progress continues. Launch company Landspace recently launched a successful mission with their Juche 2 rocket, sending three satellites to orbit on the vehicle's third flight. The Methalox rocket is the first of that kind to reach orbit after unsuccessful attempts by Relativity's Terran 1 and SpaceX's Starship. This third mission is the first time a Methalox rocket delivered to orbit. In the meantime, Landspace announced it has made significant breakthroughs with its Juche 3 vehicle, which will be a stainless steel reusable Methalox rocket with a similar look to the Falcon 9.
1: Finally, Stratolaunch tests hypersonic vehicle. Stratolaunch has completed its first captive carry test with its Talon-A hypersonic vehicle powered up. For 3 hours and 22 minutes, the world's largest plane, ROC, carried the vehicle designated TA-1 over Southern California. The Talon-A test vehicle was filled with liquid oxygen during the flight and had thermal protection system, or TPS, tiles on its nose. Depending on the analysis of the test's flight data, this may be the last captive carry before Talon A can take powered flight
0: itself. So moving on to this week in space history, we have no winners. Uh, don't blame me. This is Ben's clue. <laughs> um, <laughs> the clue was uh, digging up debris. The event was on the 12th of December, 2012. It was the NIAC release of the Space Debris Elimination Phase 1 report. In uh, Space Debris Elimination, they made that into an acronym SPADE. Uh, so um, I guess that's just how you can refer to it. So this is, yeah, this is about, I mean, we've probably read about this and heard about this weird idea of deorbiting debris in space by basically uh, like shooting e- like either water or gas of some sort like, you know, up into orbit, you know, like essentially like, you know, intercepting the object that you want to deorbit. Um, although I've never heard much more beyond that, you know, very general description but this goes into a little bit more detail so it's pretty interesting i don't know how feasible it is but uh it's a cool concept and yeah it was uh the subject of a report by i forget what niac stands for it's the nasa uh, innovative something advanced
1: advanced concepts i believe
0: innovative advanced concepts so it's kind of like nasa's own little darpa or something yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, not really, but kind of.
1: Yeah, I mean, like really out there, low TRL stuff, like solar sails to mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the outer planets and I don't know, uh, magnetic confinement, you know, nuclear pulse drive kind of like, you know, kind of sure, exotic yeah. stuff. But yeah.
0: So also well, the concept of this and this, by the way, is, is I mean, this is just a report, like I said. So basically, this is kind of like a study and it concerns a lot of modeling that was done. And these are the findings of, you know, that modeling. So there was no actual Uh, hardware built or or like anything of that nature um this is so this is all very i guess you know proof of concept sort of uh very conceptual stuff uh so like you said very low trl like nothing that's gonna happen anytime soon um possibly if ever i mean who can say the idea is to use gravity waves um or like gravity wave perturbations at Relatively low altitude to deorbit things in low Earth orbit that need to be deorbited um now when we say low altitude that 's like low altitude with respect to space, so it 's actually you know high altitude from Earth like we 're talking about something like eighty kilometers altitude, which is probably the maximum altitude that you can put a uh high altitude balloon at i 'm actually not sure what the altitudes are for that, but I think it 's somewhere around there, so very high altitude but low altitude or or extremely low earth orbit maybe we can call it that. Um, since we were just talking about Velio, this is like, you know, <laughs> Elio. Um, so, uh, this spade concept uses focus pulses of atmospheric gases to create very localized temporary drag for debris passing through that zone that's being pulsed. Now we say localized, uh, and I guess I'll get to the exact numbers soon, but this isn't a small thing. This is like a big thing. And that, and that's what really jumped out at me because some of the concepts again, that were never discussed in much detail. I thought like whenever I had heard about this, that it was like, you would like, you were kind of like shooting down. Bits of debris with a highly focused little jet of gas of some sort, right? And I think that, Dennis, that's kind of what you thought this was, but uh, that is not the case. This is basically trying to upset the upper atmosphere in such a way as to deorbit, you know, huge like swaths of low Earth orbit. <laughs> mm. um, That's kind of what they're trying to do. So it's much more ambitious than you might think. But this, you know, while very ambitious, it does have some huge benefits compared to other methods. Um, One huge one is that there's no physical hardware that needs to be launched into orbit. And so you don't have anything that might create another potential debris scenario. Uh, Plus, you just don't need to, you know, launch rockets into low-Earth orbit. Although, that might be easier than doing whatever this is, you know, like, you know, however they achieve this. So... But, I mean, at least there's nothing that, you know, might collide with something else. And the other big benefit, and I think this one actually uh, is even bigger, is that the debris intercept, the window for that can be measured in tens of seconds. And it's effective over tens of kilometers. And it has, like, a 20-kilometer sweet spot. So you just got to hit the object within, like, 20 kilometers. You're good. So it's not super high precision. You're not trying to knock something down out of orbit with a highly focused laser. So, this, yeah, you know, tracking small bits of debris and then hitting them with a laser, it's not as easy as it sounds.
1: Yeah, this this isn't targeting NVSAT and then trying to bring it down. This is just being like, we know there's a lot of stuff like debris here and we're going to just yeah. get it all in one go, which I hope – well, I don't know. I've, I've just got thoughts about how how do you make sure you don't accidentally get, you know, working satellites as well as the number of satellites that – include useful ones are also going to be proliferating on orbit as well. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I mean, that's a concern. And I suspect that you would just have to time it so that you only hit the debris because you just have to make sure that you're, I mean, it's still a relatively small window that you have. It's just, you know, a mm. few minutes. So just as long as there's no satellite that's like passing within that region over the course of a couple of minutes, then you're probably fine. So yeah, I mean, you can target it. It okay. just doesn't have to be precision targeting. You just kind of, you know, have to get it, you know, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. So the method of generating these, Uh, huge atmospheric pulses. They don't talk about that. That's just not even discussed at all. That's not part of the report. Um, They do say that it would probably have to be done from a high altitude balloon. Uh, That's as much as they say, but that just raises more questions for me because I don't know how you can generate the kinds of energies necessary, which again, we'll talk about soon from a high altitude balloon. These balloons aren't that big, and it seems like what they're talking about is like, well, uh, huge amounts of energy. Um, So the pulse necessary, um, it would need to be generated at about 25 to 35 kilometers, and that's in order to avoid drag effects from the lower atmosphere. So basically, you want to be as high up as possible before you initiate this pulse. If not, like it would just have too much atmosphere to push through. This uses, like I said, it uses gravity waves uh, in order to produce pulses that can actually maintain cohesion, so they don't spread out too much as they rise up out of the Earth's atmosphere. And I remember, I don't know how long ago, this was like a year or two ago, we were talking about gravity waves, and, like, and it really confused me because I was thinking of something completely different, but gravity waves in this context – just means the effect that gravity causes to any kind of like a fluidic type of a system that basically wants to settle, right? Um, It gets much more interesting in the upper atmosphere where the effects of gravity are actually slightly different because, uh, you know, like as you move away from the Earth, the Earth's gravitational acceleration at the surface is not the same as it is, say, you know, 100 kilometers up. And so I think maybe that um, makes for some interesting effects. But basically, it seems to me that what they're trying to do is they're trying to upset the water in a pool, like in order to create a big spurt of water that kind of like, you know, rises up and away from the surface. Something kind of like that. I think, I, I don't know. I, I mean, this is all complex modeling, but. um,
1: Yeah, my, I, I mean, I, may, I, may, I might be getting the physics wrong here. I got to admit, I'm not entirely, I've never had to teach or learn about gravity waves in, you know, astronomy or anything like that. But my understanding is it's basically just like you've got a buoyancy force that's going to want to have your fluid go up <laughs> and gravity pulling it down. And what happens is some perturbation causes, you know, let's say it starts to like your your packet of, you know, upper atmosphere starts to go down. The gravity is pulling on it, but then that increases the buoyancy force until eventually that overcomes the gravity. So it starts to rise again. But as it rises, the buoyancy mm-hmm. force gets worse and it kind of overshoots the equilibrium. And then gravity takes over and pulls right, it back exactly. down again. Yeah. And so it ends up kind of oscillating around a little bit.
0: Right. And so that's a good description. They are basically oscillations. Um, that probably sums it up better than what I said. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but
1: you, you were, your description, I think, was really good, though. I, I like the picture you were painting.
0: And so, yeah, this is all modeled using something thing called um, GITM or maybe like GITM or something. I don't know. Um, This is the global ionosphere and thermosphere model. And this, I think, is um, specifically a modeling program at the University of Michigan, which is a very complex modeling program. I don't pretend to understand it. I can never understand these things. (laughs) So yeah, there's like a lot of math involved in that. Um, But one noteworthy thing is that it it allows for a non-constant gravity throughout the vertical domain, which I think means, like I said, that you have to take gravity into consideration when you're dealing with, you know, these huge vertical altitude. So, which is kind of a redundant thing to say vertical altitude, but mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you're uh, starting at like, you know, 25 kilometers and then like 50 and then 100 and then up to 400 kilometers. And so I imagine gravity is not constant when you're, you know, like doing modeling across such a range, like, huge range of altitude. And, yeah, altitude. Yeah. yeah.
1: Which, yeah, that's usually a simplifying uh, assumption that it's all 9.80 meters per second squared throughout <laughs> Uh, sea level to yeah. uh, uh, Leo, but like, yeah, no, that, that's, that's, you're, you're right. That is interesting. You needed to take
0: that into consideration, but there were some things that they did simplify. So there were some simplifying assumptions that they made. Uh, for example, that the debris is set at a fixed altitude. This just means that once they run these simulations, uh, the debris, I think in reality would actually change altitude, but uh, they kind of, you know, did not want to account for that. So they just said, you know, this is the altitude and it stays at this fixed altitude, but it would actually drop over the course of the pulse event. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, that the perturbation is quote unquote like frozen which just means uh, that they're not taking into account the movement of this huge rise in the atmosphere which it is very much like pushing up you know hundreds of square kilometers of the Earth's atmosphere like into space and, uh-huh. and I know that that sounds crazy but that's what the idea <laughs> is um, so you, they basically modeled uh, in such a way as to you know just say that that is at one consistent rate and then you know let's see what we get here uh, but you know they thought that that would not affect the results too much uh, and I'll, I guess so I'll just take their word for that. Um, so, like I said, the atmospheric effects can take place over several hundred kilometers, which I think is just astounding. And this is all supposed to be carried out from a high altitude balloon. I don't know how. I mean, I would love to know what they're talking about here. I assume they're not talking about like you know detonating a high altitude nuclear bomb or something. I
1: mean, and sorry, sorry if you say this later, but like I know you, you've you've already said that they don't really talk about the particulars of what generates the pulse, but did they talk about like the energies involved for making something this kind of stupidly powerful?
0: So, yeah, we're we're talking about roughly 2.5 million kilograms of TNT.
1: Oh, that's, that's, that's uh, almost 11 trillion joules.
0: 11 trillion. Okay. So yeah. Or 2.5 million kilograms of TNT. So that's a lot. So, I mean, that could be a nuclear device of some sort, but obviously I assume that that's not, uh, uh, how they want to do this. Um, (sighs) So that's a lot, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Again, I don't know how practical this is. It's an interesting study, you know, like maybe just to know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So basically, in order to bring down a typical piece of debris, and I don't know how they characterize typical, but I imagine they just, you know, do like an average of like all the debris that they can track, and then that's how they determine that number. Um, This would require a 2,000% change in pressure over 200 kilometers of the debris path. So basically, it would need to pass through about 200 kilometers of a 2,000 percent increase in the local atmospheric pressure so yeah you're taking a huge chunk of the atmosphere down below and you're basically lifting it up into low earth orbit so no small feet there but this is so high enough
1: that like there's not going to be birds caught above this getting swept into leo
0: birds you said
1: yeah right I and mean, we're talking about this is still tens of kilometers oh yeah this would be very very high, high. Okay. okay
0: yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. This would start I mean this the the actual blast would probably propagate starting at around like eighty kilometers uh you know in altitude, so pretty high up. Yeah, and so a piece of debris with a drag coefficient of one point six would likely do orbit within one orbit. So that's if they carry out an event of this magnitude, right? You know, this whole two point six billion or yeah, whatever like what was it? I said it wasn't yeah. that big. It no, was, two uh,
1: two and a half million uh kilograms of TNT. Oh kilograms not, yeah. yeah. Kilograms two, on yeah. Tons, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so a detonation at that altitude, which I said was, you know, starting at about like 80 kilometers, that would produce a 40-fold increase in the local temperature, and a 3,000 kilometer per hour vertical velocity um, that would result in a gravity wave propagating to a suitable intercept altitude. So basically, the intercept altitude is kind of interesting, because there's some other effects that come into play, which I'll talk about that in just a moment. But basically, what happens is you have uh, this initial wave that actually propagates away from the primary wave in, I guess, the ionosphere, when they generate this shock, this, you know, huge blast, you have this wave that essentially like rushes away from the main one, and then that goes much higher, and that can reach altitudes of 450 kilometers, and then that will eventually start to, you know, resettle, but um it's traveling at a much higher speed at about 1,000 meters per second, or about like one kilometer per second, um, so it's going pretty fast, and um, that might actually affect the debris perigee and apogee, so it might not necessarily deorbit the debris, but because it's, you know, hitting it from the bottom with a whole lot of, well, not a whole lot of force, but, you know, with, you know, enough force that it might actually change the orbit of, mm. you know, the object itself, sure. which is kind of interesting. So that might be like one additional way to deorbit the object is to just change the perigee. So if you can hit it hard enough away from you, then, you know, once it comes around to the other side of the planet, it would, you know, presumably be coming in at a much lower altitude and uh, might deorbit from there. But there's no,
1: there's no, there's no risk of boosting the orbit <laughs> of the debris. I mean, I I figured like drag should always be slowing it down, but like this sounds um, almost well, weird. I don't think,
0: <laughs> yeah, but is that how it works though? So, because I thought if you were pushing it, like if you change, if you go, um, oh geez, what's the term I'm looking for? I mean, you're basically changing the eccentricity of the orbit if you're pushing it up and away from you, like because you're not increasing the velocity. So it's not traveling in a prograde direction.
1: Yeah, sure. If you're, yeah, if you're not, well, if you're changing the eccentricity, you have to be changing the velocity to some extent. But if you're not adding energy to the orbit, right. I guess is the well, key. Well, exactly. If, you're so not, I- if you change the eccentricity and you don't add energy, then yeah, then you end up making it where... You know, by increasing the apogee on one side, your perigeal will change.
0: And so the upshot of this is that, quote unquote, lobbing a massive air to the correct altitude, uh, this is critical to achieve something called the stall effect. And the stall effect is pretty interesting. So basically, you have this huge like vertical column of you know the atmosphere that is being moved upwards that is like propagating upwards, and when the top of that column of air hits its apogee or you know sort of like hits its apex um and then it begins to fall, it actually collides with uh the air down below which is still moving in an upward direction, and that creates the area of highest density and so that is where you want to intercept the debris. I thought that was an interesting part of this modeling, so it it kind of goes to show you how they're not just you know like blowing onto the debris with huge masses of air but they're kind of you know trying to use the atmosphere and all the effects that i guess occur when you're doing something like this which has never been done before i i guess short of like maybe a nuclear bomb i don't know what the effects on the upper atmosphere are there um or you know like even in Earth orbit that would be interesting to know um but i'm sure something similar might happen but yeah you get this interesting stall effect where Basically, you get uh, two different air masses, you know, like colliding, uh, and then you get enough density to at least significantly affect the orbit of the debris. And yeah, and so, um, like we are saying, 2.5 million kilograms of TNT, that's a lot. And so a one-shot method probably is not practical, so they might need to use several smaller ones. Um, and that seems more practical. I mean, still seems pretty unlikely because uh, I don't know what smaller in this sense means. Mm-hmm. Um but um yeah like if you use the one-shot method, right? Um you would get about a three percent reduction in delta V, which is significant. I mean that's enough to deorbit it in fairly short order. And that is predicted to be effective at four hundred kilometers altitude and that's for typical debris. So the spade phase one summary, um, and I just kind of copy this. Um the perturbations at altitudes of approximately 80 kilometers can reach orbital debris at 600 kilometers. In number two, the expansion of the gas cloud propagates in the horizontal directions while keeping a compact vertical profile, creating a disk. Basically, it does kind of look like a huge, kind of like a huge piston shape um, that's kind of like pushing up through the atmosphere. Or it basically looks kind of like a mushroom cloud, really. Huh. Um and so if you imagine a mushroom cloud kind of like rising, uh, you know, up and out of the atmosphere, that's, you know, sort of what, you know, these models kind of sort of look like finding number three is that there is a leading shock wave that precedes the actual pressure wave. Uh, like I said, uh, that travels at a high speed and, uh, might potentially affect the orbit of debris while not necessarily deorbiting it, but maybe um, number four uh, the vertical velocity is required to move the mass to altitude. this just means that you have to overcome gravity so that's a pretty like you know that 's a pretty obvious thing, so you just uh, you need a lot of vertical velocity in order to get a huge mass of air at you know 400, 500, 600 kilometers altitude which is the hard to believe part you know how do you <laughs> actually do that uh summary point number 5 uh, the shear winds at 150 kilometers did not significantly affect the perturbation so basically you know these upper atmosphere winds uh didn't seem to play much of a role in, in affecting things probably just because you know the at that altitude's fairly thin and uh the energies involved here are so huge and um it is kind of frustrating that they that there was no mention of how the hell you uh generate you know these kinds of energies But uh, it's basically just setting off some kind of a bomb in the upper atmosphere in order to remove satellite debris. That's kind of the main conclusion that I came to. Mm. I mean, if anyone has any ideas about how you can do that sort of in a safe and, yeah, a safe way that doesn't put people's lives in danger because it seems like it might do that too. I guess it's something that would need to be done over, you know, an ocean or maybe, you know, Antarctica or something. But um, I'm assuming the debris passes over those regions.
1: You get all the defunct sun synchronous orbit. Yeah, that's about
0: all you could get there. yeah. But yeah, there you go. That's this week in space flight history. Spade, crazy idea for removing space debris. And with, you know, like having said all that, it seems to me that maybe just uh, sending rockets into space with, you know, a little, you know, go fetch and retrieve, nets and so forth that does seem far more practical to me yes you're putting more stuff into space but you're not generating giant pulses quote-unquote which is just i think a nicer word to say explosion in the upper atmosphere mm. yeah no
1: that's this is this was definitely a wild twist thank you david um yeah if you if you if, if if you have an idea for what could generate that in like a safe way like david was talking about uh don't just email us uh apply to Niac. <laughs> Maybe you can get funded to develop your idea.
0: (laughs) So next week, uh, the date range for next week's clue is the 19th of December through the 25th of December. And Dennis, do you have a clue on Ben's behalf?
1: I do. Next week in 1976, Achievement Unlocked.
0: Sort of a very generic video game reference there. I don't know what <laughs> what that could be in reference to, but I'm sure uh, Ben will have a fun time explaining it. But um, if you have a guess as to what that clue is in reference to, uh, just give us an email at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon and use the hashtag this week SF. Or you can visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash Discord for an invite to our Discord server. Just type slash TWSF and you can hand your guest directly to our TomBot. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. Let's move along then to upcoming spaceflight events. we got five events total. I think most of them launches except for one. Uh, What's the first launch, Dennis? The first one we've talked about for the third time now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we've got four launches in four days, and this will kick it off. Yeah. We've been talking about this every week. This is, once again, Rocket Lab's Electron rocket uh, taking the payload the Moon God Awakens, which is a uh, SAR satellite uh, by QPS, um, or sorry, IQPS uh, is the company that uh, has made it. And so uh, this launch is now uh, slated for December 13th, Wednesday. With a window from 0400 to 0600 UTC. And so it'll be flying out of the Mahia Peninsula, New Zealand at Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1B.
0: And then after that, on the 14th, we have the launch of another Starlink. This is Starlink Group 79 on a Falcon 9 Block 5. Again, launching from Vandenberg. I think we had one launching from there last week as well. The window for that we don't really have, it's just sometime during the 14th, so you'll just have to keep an eye out for it. This is per a NOTAM. Um, It's launching from Space Launch Complex 4E. And, uh, yeah, if you're on the West Coast, you can check that out maybe.
1: And then our only non-launch of the week, um, the space station is quite crowded right now. You've got a Crew-7 Dragon and the Soyuz's MS-24 that had uh, that crew. And then you've got a Cargo Dragon, a pair of Progresses, and a Cygnus. And so they're going to start tossing some stuff off. And so on Thursday, December 14th at 2.45 p.m. Eastern, uh, coverage will begin of the undocking of SpaceX CRS-29, that Dragon cargo I mentioned. And so the undocking itself is scheduled for 3.05 p.m. Eastern. And yeah, you can uh, uh, check that uh, out happening on NASA TV.
0: And then after that, we have another Falcon 9 Block 5, this time launching OVZON, O-V-Z-O-N, or OVZON. Um, it's a small communication satellite of the Swedish U.S. company OZON. I've never heard of them. Uh, so <laughs> this is new to me, yeah. It's a mobile broadband connectivity satellite for underserved regions. Okay. Yeah, so like I said, launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5. The window for that or the time for that actually looks like an instantaneous launch window will be 2045 UTC launching from Slick 40 at the Cape. So check that one out.
1: And then finally, rounding us out, we have a Soyuz 21B with a Frigate M upper stage. Arctica M number two, uh, which is uh, the second uh, satellite in the Arctica M or Arctic M uh, Earth observation satellites from Russia. And so uh, this one will be launching on Saturday, December 16th at 0917 UTC, flying out of Baikonur. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: <laughs> All right, which means it's time to adjourn with the show. We would like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dunn for our music.
1: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific time and 12 p.m. Eastern. And thank you so much to Chubby, Mike Citronot, the Greek, and Colin for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show, please tell a friend. Or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen you can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links.
0: And get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. or you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. See you.